Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 55. We are taking a break over the next six weeks from our study of Ephesians to uh, today uh, look at the theme and then begin next Sunday with our Advent sermons of uh, searching for the Savior, the Christmas clues, as we see how God, through the prophets, uh, pointed to the coming of the Savior. Isaiah 55, which it is important to note, follows Isaiah 53, one of the most explicit Old Testament depictions of Christ going to the cross on our behalf for our salvation. God speaking now through the prophet. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Thus far, our Old Testament lesson. Please turn now to the first letter of Peter. First letter of Peter. 
beginning with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together now. God, our Father, this is your word to us. Open our ears to hear. Prepare our hearts to receive your word like seed sown in the ground. Open our eyes to see Jesus. Help us to hear him speaking to us. May you bear rich fruit from our lives even today. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. We come in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and for his praise. Amen. In the middle of the last century, an English clergyman by the name of J.B. Phillips, wrote a little book entitled, Your God is Too Small. In one sense, that's a preposterous idea. God doesn't come in different sizes. He is immense. He's infinite. He is who he is, and nothing we might do or say can change him in the very least. Yet on the other hand, this is precisely the problem. Most of us are not embracing him for who he is. 
but for who we think he is, or even more, for who we want him to be. And in that regard, our thoughts about God are far, far too small. Some think of God as an angry drill sergeant, constantly shouting to keep us in line. Others see him as a benevolent grandparent, just waiting to spoil us with his love. Still others look to him as the family physician, someone to call on in times of need, but the rest of the time you just go about life and not even acknowledge that he's there. We grumble a bit when we do call and have to wait in the waiting room longer than we think we need to wait or wait to get in to him longer than she might have room for us to see her. But uh, some of us see God that way. Now, while each of these ways of thinking about God have strands of truth in them, None of them is sufficient to convey the fullness to us of the God who is there, of the God who calls us to worship him. So we would do well, all of us, to consider whether our God is too small. And yet, as important as this question is, Today, I would focus your attention in a slightly different direction and ask you a different question, the one as equally important. Is your salvation too small? Is your salvation too small? Why are you a Christian? What do you expect to get out of your faith? For those of you who don't believe, what are you looking for in life? What do you hope to get from life? People talk about getting saved. Well, what is it that they think they're getting? What do they hope to get in salvation? Just as with the previous question, there are a wide variety of views about salvation. For some, salvation is strictly about the future. A ticket into heaven, kind of a life insurance policy that once you obtain, you just put it away for whenever you may happen to need it. For others, salvation is another version of the American dream, a bargain with God that if you work hard and play by the rules, that God will fulfill all your dreams of a spouse or a house or perfect kids, a successful career, and of course that vacation home either at Deep Creek or at Myrtle Beach. Some see salvation as a verbal valium, a coping mechanism, a mind game to dull the pains of this life. 
they unconsciously agree with Karl Marx that salvation is an opiate for the people. Still others see salvation not so much a dulling the pains of life, but rather escaping the pains of life. How big is your salvation? What is it that you are expecting or hoping for in salvation? Is your salvation confined to the finite dimensions of your mind, of your vision? The minutia of your current struggles? Or does it reach out to the fullness of the infinite God who truly gives salvation? Is it just one aspect of life, a box to be ticked off and then you move on from it, now it's under my belt and in my back pocket, or is it a treasure of surprising value and surpassing value that you spend your whole life trying to handle and understand. The Apostle Peter in our text is writing to a church that was suffering miserably because of their faith. The Roman emperor was seeking to stamp out Christians. And Peter reminds them of the glorious fullness of their salvation. And he urges them not to let go, but to hold on to it and to explore it in all of its fullness. He wants them to know, to believe, to experience that salvation is truly worth it. It is worth seeking salvation. And he would urge you, dear friends, to do the same. Salvation is worth your seeking. Now, as we look to the text, as Peter begins by discussing this majestic and glorious salvation that is to be had for all those in Christ, we see that salvation is as much about God as it is about you. And yet at the same time, it's as much about you as it is about God. As he unfolds the wonders of salvation in our text, salvation is not just about saving your neck from some unpleasant circumstance, but it's about how God has acted to bring about your salvation. Notice in verse 3, it begins with God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can't talk about salvation without, first of all, praising the God who has given it. It is according to his great mercy. Not according to our clever perception that we need help, but according to his great mercy. And he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And this salvation comes 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's all about God is, is how he begins. He goes on in verse 4 to say that our inheritance is kept in heaven where God reigns and rules. In verse 5, he points out it is by God's power that that salvation is guarded for us. In verse 7, he says that it is at the revelation of Jesus Christ, referring to the end of time when Christ returns again, that there will be praise and glory and honor to the Lord. In verse 11, he says that it is the spirit of Christ that is speaking to the prophets, pointing to the coming of our salvation. In verse 12, he says the good news that is preached to us is by the Holy Spirit, speaking through those who proclaim the gospel. Our salvation is too small when we think only about us and our troubles in life and our struggles in life and the unfairness of life. Because salvation begins with God in all of his infinite love and mercy and power and glory. We have to look up from ourselves to the Lord. If we look only at ourselves We'll just make ourselves more and more depressed. For even on our best days, there are just so many flaws and failures and struggles in our lives. It would send us to despair, even the best of us. And yet, and yet, Salvation is not just a matter of God mechanically stamping out Christians in assembly line fashion. No, it's not just... Salvation is not something that God does because that's what God does. That's what he's supposed to do. Early in my ministry, I had the uncomfortable and unpleasant but necessary responsibility to confront a member of this church at that time about egregious public sin. Calling upon this one to repent. And the response I got is, yeah, I know I really shouldn't. But right now, I kind of feel like doing it. But when I get tired of it, I'll just ask God to forgive me and he'll forgive me because that's his job. No, salvation is not just God churning out salvation in assembly line fashion mechanically because that's what he's supposed to do. No, it is very intensely personal about you and about me. Notice what he puts in the midst of all this Focus on the glory of God and his great work in salvation in verse 4 and verse 3. It is we who are born again. He causes us who are dead in transgressions and sin to be born again. And the salvation is kept in heaven for you 
he says in verse 4. And it's very interesting because in verse 3, he's talking about us collectively. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. But now suddenly he's making it more personal who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Uh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Kept in heaven for you. For you. God cares about you. Not as another gadget on the assembly line. He cares about you. He's keeping it. Salvation, guarding it for you. Who believe. And it is guarded through faith. You need to believe. In verse 8. Notice what he says. You love him. You believe in him. You rejoice with joy. Inexpressible. This is you doing it. Not just God churning it out. But this is something that you are grasping. You are receiving with love. And with Hope and joy and faith. This is about you. Verse 9, he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's something you do, you respond to. Something that God has done for you personally, you embrace, receive, and obtain personally. Salvation is about what God has done, he is doing, and what he will yet do. But is what he has done, is doing, and will do yet for you as God acts for you. Personally, through your faith, for your salvation. Salvation is as much about God as it is about you. It's as much about you as it is about God. It's it's much bigger than your petty little world. It's much more than God just churning out salvation because he has to do that. That's his job. But furthermore, salvation is as much about the future as it is about the present. And yet it's as much about the present as it is about the future. We tend to look at either one. We want help now to get out of this fix. Or we think of it just as something Oh, in the sweet by and by, it'll come. Don't have to worry about it until I need it. We feel the weight of sin and experience the consequences of sin in the here and now. And we don't want to wait for relief. We want relief now. We're struggling. We're hurting. And yet we read that in verse 4 that our salvation is being kept in heaven. It's being kept in heaven. In verse 5, we read, it's ready to be revealed at the last time. It's going to be fully revealed, but it's going to come at the last time. It's not just, now we get it all. Uh, God is waiting for a day when the fullness of salvation and all that it means, not just for you, but for all of God's people, will be revealed. So we wait for the last time. In verse 7 we read, 
that the praise and honor and glory of salvation come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here he's returned, referring to when Jesus will return again at the end of the ages. When his invisible kingdom will be made visible. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That is when our salvation will be revealed fully in all of its fullness. It's not just about saving our neck now. That's much too small that this current crisis, that I can get through it. God has much bigger plans for us. And yet, salvation is not just some distant hope. Hopefully, someday, maybe, perhaps, no, No, verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not just something in the future, but something that lives even now. We are meant to be hopeful now. It's a living hope. It's not dead. It's not a mere possibility. It is something we have confidence in. It is living. It is real. In verse 6, he says, In this, referring to all that's gone ahead in verses 3 through 5 about God's amazing work of salvation, he says, in this you rejoice now. You're rejoicing now. And then again in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him now. Though you do not see, now see him, you believe in him now. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. A joy that begins now. Not that waits, hopefully, maybe. No, but you begin your joy now. That's what God's salvation is all about. The fullness of salvation does await the return of Jesus to consummate his kingdom. But the experience of salvation is meant to begin now. The Holy Spirit that God places in our hearts, that makes us alive, that enables us to cry out to God, Abba, Father, that we could call upon God as a father, is something to be experienced now. It's not just somewhere over the rainbow. It's right now under the dark clouds and storms of daily life. Now, if you expect it all now, you are going to be severely disappointed. If you think it is all in the future, you are going to quickly become very frustrated. But our salvation is so big. It goes from what God did in the past to what we are meant to experience now to what God has in an even greater way for us when Christ comes again. Salvation is as much about the future as it is the present, but it's also as much about the present as it is about the future. But Peter goes on. Salvation is as much about suffering 
as it is about glory. And yet it is as much about glory as it is about suffering. Peter was concerned for the believers. They were beginning to experience an intensification of persecution. He did not want them to think that because life as a Christian was becoming hard that God had abandoned them. That the presence of suffering meant the absence of salvation. In verse 6, he, he confronts head-on the reality of suffering. He says, you have been grieved by various trials. He understands it hurts. It brings grief, particularly when those trials come because we profess the name of Jesus, because we name his name and will bow to no other. He wants us to know that suffering is not a penalty for unbelief and failure. As he makes clear in the opening verses of this letter, he is writing to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ and sprinkling with his blood. He is talking about believers who have embraced God in the fullness of his triune being. And what he's making clear is that suffering is a normal part of Christian experience. But it is not overwhelming of or contradictory to your being a Christian. Note what he says in verse 6. It is only temporary. It is only temporary. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. For a little while. Sometimes it may seem much longer than just a little while. But in the scheme of eternity, friends, our worst suffering is just for a little while. When you're in the middle of it, it just seems to stretch on forever. When Nancy was diagnosed with leukemia, initially her chemo was working, but then it stopped and she went into the crisis and we didn't know whether she was going to live. And then we went through the transplant. We lived for a hundred days following the transplant in a tiny studio apartment across from the hospital. Every day going to the hospital wondering, what are the numbers going to say? Is she going to make it? And she made it through the 100 days, and they released her to come home, and then COVID hit. We're wondering, is she going to make it? Is she going to get COVID? She's immune-suppressed. Going through those days seemed like a long time. But now she's two years out. She's off her chemo medicine. In some ways, those early days are getting harder and harder to remember, at least for me. I'm sure for her, not so easy to forget. But you see, what can seem so big is, he says, it's for a little while what you suffer. You will suffer. 
That's a part of being a Christian. But in the scheme of things, it's for a little while. It has limits. But also, it is necessary. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And the indication is that it is necessary when you are grieved. Suffering is not an aberration of the normal Christian life. Pointing somehow to failure on your part to be a Christian properly. Though we do have to acknowledge that some of our suffering comes from our own stupid disobedience. But not all suffering. We can make things hard for ourselves. The way of the sinner is hard, the writer to Proverbs says, Solomon with his wisdom. Yeah, you want to make life hard? Disobey God. Adam and Eve went from a weedless garden to only weeds and thistles. Presence of God to his absence, but suffering in itself is not proof of disobedience, of failure as a Christian. Real Christians do experience suffering. And one of the reasons it is necessary is that suffering is purifying. He goes on in verse 7 to say, You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is purifying as the... As the goldsmith puts the ore, the dirty-looking ore that has specks of brilliance, as he puts it in the fire to burn off the dross, more and more there is the gleaming beauty of the gold without flecks of darkness in it. Suffering purifies and perfects our faith. It shows we're serious about God. That we're not just using him as a crutch that we just want to get out of our current crisis. And when we're done with the crisis, we're done with him. He wants us to show that, yes, we will love him. Even though it all seems bleak, that's the message of Job. Would Job continue to love God if everything in this world were taken away from him? That is the big question of Job. And it's hard on Job, and he complains at times. But he, by God's grace, he holds on. And how great and glorious it was that he did. And how great and glorious it is when you and I hold on to God in the midst of our suffering. Faith is not an easy escape. It is not a mere opiate to avoid the hardships of life. It is unwavering Commitment that is proven by trial. And friends, there is no cause at all for us to complain about suffering. Because Jesus the Savior suffered in order to obtain our salvation. Verse 11, he says, that the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The sufferings of Christ. Jesus 
had to go to the cross to pay not for his sins. He had no sin. He had to pay for my sins, every one of them. He had to pay the price for your sin, every one of them. And friends, the amazing thing about that is that none of us knows the full extent of our own sins. We are so blind to our own sinning. The heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah says. We don't know how much of a sinner we are, but God does. And he still sent Christ to the cross on our behalf. But salvation is not all suffering. It is also glorious. There is glory in salvation. Again, in verse 3, we are born again into a living hope. It's not an empty hope. It's not a hopeless hope. It is a living hope. It's not dead. It is alive. There is reason to be hopeful. You personally can have a living hope. And the inheritance that God has provided through Jesus in which we hope is an amazing inheritance. Verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable. It cannot perish. It cannot disappear. It is undefiled. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no bait and switch going on. It is sure. And it's unfading. It doesn't. It's not a mirage. It doesn't disappear over time. It's a, it is an amazing inheritance that is kept in heaven by God himself. And our salvation, your salvation, will be for the glory of Jesus. Verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. That your faith will be displayed before the world to the glory of God because you believed. Not that we can add to the glory of God, but we can reflect the glory of God, of what he's done in a sinner like me and in sinners like you. And Jesus himself went through suffering in order to obtain glory. It says in verse 11, and the subsequent glories, not just single glory, but glories, all the glories there are, Jesus Jesus possesses his suffering, did not neglect the glory. See, we have to stop thinking that when we suffer, something is wrong with God or something is wrong with me. And we tend to think that way. Where are you, God? Why is this happening? Or, oh no, woe is me. I've blown it again. What have I done? No. Suffering is a part of the way that God reveals his glory in us as he strengthens our faith. And friends, this salvation that has as much to do with God as with you and you as with God, as much about the 
the present as the future and the future as the present as much to do about glory as suffering and suffering as glory. This salvation, he makes very clear, is worth seeking. Salvation is not God's reward for the perfect life. Salvation is the revelation of his grace. Notice verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Not the earnings, not the merit that was to be yours for a life perfectly lived. No, about the grace about the gift of God to an undeserving sinner, but nonetheless a real gift about the grace that was to be yours. You see, it is God's gift that enables you and me to live the Christian life in the face of a fallen world. We don't have it within ourselves. The world would overwhelm us apart from God's mercy. It is this amazing gift about which the prophets spoke. They not only spoke, but it says they searched and inquired carefully. They inquired about it. They really, as they were the messengers of God, and and they were understanding what God was saying through them, not in its fullness, but they were getting the idea that God was going to save his people. And they wanted to see what that was all about. And so they searched with great care. It's not just the prophets. The angels themselves, as they looked upon God creating this world and the rebellion of mankind in Adam and And God refraining from destroying the world, but rather promising a seed that would destroy the serpent. They wanted to see what was going to happen here. They weren't just indifferent. Just another day in the neighborhood of God's kingdom. No, they wanted to know this was big stuff to to reject the God of all creation. No, they were peering. It was like they're peering down from heaven, looking at the earth, wanting to see what is how is God going to do this? It's amazing. And friends, if angels and prophets longed intently to discover what God is doing, how much more should you and I, who are the recipients of this great salvation, want to see what it is that God has done, is doing, and will yet do for us. And the next several weeks, we're going to look at these clues that God slowly revealed through the prophets so that his people, he just revealed them one at a time. The fullness of it at once would be too much to comprehend. It wouldn't make sense. So he, he little by little was letting clues out about this great salvation that was coming. That's what we're going to be looking at. You know, when a billionaire buys a mansion on a large estate in demonstration of his wealth and achievement, what is he doing? He's buying a place to store his expensive furniture and his expensive art. He's 
getting another place to entertain. But for him or her, it's just another house. He probably has three or four or six or ten more. And scattered all over the world. But for the orphan who suddenly discovers he wasn't really all alone or she was all alone but inherits a mansion. Friends, that's not just a building to live in to that orphan. It's not just a place to store stuff. The orphan probably doesn't have much stuff to store. It's a whole new and glorious world. They don't just walk through the halls and rooms ignoring what's there. They're looking at what's all around them as they go in to explore this place that's nothing like they've ever experienced before. She doesn't take for granted the glorious surroundings. She wants to see each picture, inspect and sit on each chair. Look at the decorations. Feel the carpeting between her toes. Because it's unbelievable. It's beyond what that orphan could ever have imagined. Christian friends, salvation is not something that we receive and stuff away for some day when we might need it. It's something for you now and then. It's something to explore and treasure and plumb the depths we do not realize all that God has for us now, much less all that God has for us then. We speculate about heaven, but so much is mere speculation. What it will be to live in a new heaven and new earth where there's no death and no sin and no crying and no pain. We can scarce get a glimpse or an idea of what that all means. Now, if you're not a Christian, Christ himself is offering himself to you as the only way of salvation. It's not about your worthiness. It's about God's grace and God's mercy to sinners. It's about his love for people who don't deserve his love. But it's real. Christ left the Lord's Supper to remind us. of the cost of our salvation. This shows us that Jesus had to die in order to obtain it. But the wonder of it, that sinners like you and me would be invited to God's family table, to his wedding feast, not ignored, not shunned, not overlooked, but invited and welcomed. Jesus purchased our salvation. 
He purchased it for, for us who believe. And he offers it to us, not only through his word, but in visible form. This is a meal, and Christ himself is here as the host. May God open our eyes that we would see the wonder of our salvation that Christ obtained through the cross through which he entered into indescribable glory, a glory that is to be ours on that last day. It's for all who seek it, for all who receive it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you. We are humbled by your mercy we can scarcely grasp the wondrous dimensions of all that salvation means, of all that it is for us who believe. Oh Lord, we believe, but we pray, help our unbelief even this day. Show us how small we've been thinking about this great, great gift of salvation that you've given us in your Son. And may we more and more spend our days pondering the majesty and glory of the salvation we have in Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.